Hey guys, Reed Goosens here. Now before we dive into today's show, I quickly want to tell you about some exciting things happening in 2018. Now in a few months time, I will be launching my brand spanking new book appropriately titled Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And it is all the best bits from this show transformed into a book. Now, as you are all loyal listeners on this show, we are doing a pre-launch book giveaway. So what you have to do in order to participate in this pre-launch book giveaway is just shoot me an email. It's pretty simple. At info, that's I-N-F-O at readgoosens.com. And in the subject line, you can put the words Kraken book. And in return, I will shoot you back a link where you can go and pre-order your copy of my new book. Now, remember, in that link, there will be an area where you can put the code Kraken, C-R-A-C-K-I-N, and that will enable you to get a discount. I want to thank you all for tuning in. The reason why I do this show is because of my loyal listeners, and this is a way of me giving back to you guys by helping you. You can pre-order the book and get it for free before we launch in a couple of months' time. All right, now back into the show. And we're currently in a shift um, to becoming a renter nation. Meaning we have a you know, generation of people who saw the foreclosure crisis. They don't want to own a house. They're like, that hap- you know, I don't want that to happen to me. I just want to be a renter. We've got the millennials and, and that um, just they want the flexibility of renting. They don't want to have to be tied down by a house. They want to you know, live here for a year and then move to another city. They want to be able to chase the, next, you know, chase the good paying jobs and be able to have the flexibility to move around. We've got the baby, baby boomer generation that you know, they finally got the kids out of the basement. So now they want to, down- now they want to downsize and, and you know, just have an apartment and not have to worry about maintenance. And so we're seeing just a huge shift. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Cushman. Andrew started flipping houses back in 2007 here in sunny Southern California. And in 2011, he transitioned to acquiring multifamily assets. Over that period of time, he's now acquired over 1,800 units across the country. And outside of business, he is an avid skier, surfer, and he loves spending time with his two little boys. I'm so excited to have him on the show. Really pumped to get into the nuts and bolts of what he does. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Andrew. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on, Reed. My pleasure. Well, mate, we met a couple of weeks ago back at a uh, multifamily or just a real estate investing um, uh, summit, I guess we want to talk about, Rod Cleave Summit. It was fantastic. You and I were both up on stage. Uh, great to meet another Californian, uh, Los Angelesite, Los Angeles. Um, tell me a little bit, of, but before we dive into what you do, rewind the clock back and tell us how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Uh, I've actually I've got a picture of it. And it was when I was five years old. I made seventeen dollars and fifty cents. Uh, what I did is my grandparents lived um, during the summers. They lived uh, near a golf course, and my grandfather every morning would get up and walk around the golf course, and I would go with him, and we would dig the golf balls out of the woods that the people had lost. And then at the end of the summer, I took my little red wagon and I washed all the golf balls, got them cleaned up. And then we went down there and I sat at the cr- where they got where the golfers crossed the road, and I sold their golf balls back to them. <laughs> and uh, after cleaning them up, and I mean, yeah, I made seventeen dollars and fifty cents, and that was that was my first uh, first business and, and profitable one at that. So I had low overhead and a very low overhead. That's awesome. Uh, I could imagine that seventeen dollars was like that was well earned seventeen dollars fifty, right? What, oh, at five years old, back in nineteen eighty, early nineteen eighties, man, I was wealthy. That was great. <laughs> what did you use it for? What you what you invest in with that seventeen fifty? Uh, you know, at this point, I don't remember. Uh, I know some of it went into savings, and you know, I probably bought some baseball cards or something, <laughs> like a typical five year old, right? Yeah. Um, but walk us through the story of you know how you become and what you do right now. Everything from did you go to college uh, and how you got involved in real estate investing. Yeah, when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to have my own business, but I didn't know, I had no idea how to do that or what that would be. So I said, all right, well, I like chemistry and I like problem solving and physics, so I'll go be a chemical engineer. So I went to university, got a chemical engineering degree and figured, you know what, this will be a good income until I figure out what I really want to do. Um, so I got out, of, got out of college, went to work for a big food company as an engineer, got married a few years later. And so my wife and I started trying all these businesses, uh, like we, you know, we made pop flavored popcorn in our kitchen and we looked into vending and, you know, selling t-shirts online and all this crazy stuff. And it was fun. And, you know, each time made a little bit of money, but we, we quickly realized that they probably weren't going to lead to financial freedom. And so we, we found somebody, um, that was flipping houses and we went and said, you know, we could do that. And we learned how to do that. And I think it was 2007, we actually flipped our first house here in Southern California and I basically made as much flip in that house as I did uh, all year at my job working wow. as an engineer. So I said, hey, this is it. The time is now. I'm out of here. So I quit my job, uh, went full time into flipping. My wife did the same. You know, she joined me full time two years later. We did that for uh, four or five years. It went really well. But and then in 2010, uh, you know, we said, you know, this has been great, but it's not going to last forever, right? The markets are continually changing. So we said, what's going to be the next big thing? And we were like, well, all right, we're at the end of a recession and apartments usually do really well coming out of a recession. And all these people that just lost their home to foreclosure 
they have to rent, right? They, you know, no, no one's gonna be able to buy a house for the next five to seven years. So we're like, well, you know, apartments should do really well for, for, for the foreseeable future. And so I actually went and found a mentor, learned the apartment business. Uh, 2011, we bought our first complex. It was 92 units, um, mostly vacant on the other side of the country. And uh, I purchased that. And then uh, we've been doing apartments full-time ever since. And we've done, um, I said, about 1,800 units to date. So. Wow, that's an incredible story. And I think, you know, just to rewind back, 2007, getting involved uh, just before the crash, did you find it tough, you know, flipping houses back then? No, it was a great time to flip houses because uh, number one, there was no competition. Everyone was scared to death of the market, right? And so, so there's no such thing as a bad market. There's only a bad strategy. <laughs> so what we were doing is, is and, and you know, everyone else was buying a house retail and then trying to flip it to the next guy who's going to pay more. So what we would do is we would find distressed houses. We would go and buy them for you know, 50, 55% of their value, fix them up, and then turn around and list them at 80% of their value, right? So even though the market was crashing, because we were offering the, the end buyer a, a good deal, we, we sold our, we never had a property once we listed it for more than 30 days. And so wow. we, we, we were profitable on every single flip we did right through the recession into the bottom and everything. So it actually was a great time. There's no competition and uh, the deals were plenty. That's incredible. So I could only imagine, because I also live here in Southern California, that how that you said there was no competition. Like what is, like, I, I, I just know I've got a couple of buddies who, who flip houses now and just, it is a zoo out there and, and people, now, uh, and, now, and, yeah. and, and I'm, we're actually looking to buy a house for ourselves right now and people are just offering all cash and there's like 30 offers and it's just, it's crazy just out, out in the market. And, you know, it's been renovated, but it actually has just literally had a lick of paint and some basic flooring put in, (laughs) but it's still so funny that I couldn't even imagine what it would be like that no one was in the market. So did you, were you able to build a pretty good uh, reputable brand through, because you said you were flipping for four to five years. That's a, that's a pretty long time to be flipping for that, that that period of time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it wasn't, um, we were we were dealing in a, in a very specific niche, um, and at that time, the, the it was more of you know us going out and sourcing deals. It, it wasn't a real you know when you hear about these flippers who are doing a hundred deals a year or something like that, you know fifty deals a year, hundred two hundred. That wasn't us. We were doing low volume, very high margin deals. Um, so, you know, it wasn't really a branding thing. It was more of a personal relationship thing. Whenever we would get in touch with sellers, we were really good at connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's one that and sheer persistence, uh, is what led to our success with that. And I want to add before we go on any further is that you, another engineer like myself, former structural civil engineer. And I think I've lost count how many people have been on this show that were ex-engineers and got into real estate. I don't know what it is in the waters at the university engineering <laughs> engineering schools around the world, but there's something. And I think it's just the analytical mindset of, of all engineers. Like, there's a problem. I'm going to go fix it. I'm going to take it apart. I'm going to put it back together again. And I'm going to go, you know, create financial freedom if I can instead of working the day job. That's it's pretty. I just wanted to mention that before we before we continue. What I do want to talk about a little bit is is about how the opportunities here in the United States are just so plentiful compared to say other countries around the world. And and you know I come from Australia, so another Western first world country, and I constantly talk about the differences in in, in market strategies and in you know, just the fact the sheer population. You know how you have secondary and tertiary markets here in the United States. In your opinion, why do you believe the U.S. is such a great place to invest, and particularly in commercial uh, assets like multifamily? 
Uh, that, you know, there's a handful of reasons, um, but one of the ones that I think is most applicable right now is the is kind of the the transition we're seeing in our in our economy and our mentality of owning versus renting. Right? If you go to Europe, the vast majority of people there are renters, and it's been that way for a long time. The United States is the opposite, where you know, ten years ago, 67% of the population owned a house, which is you know, which is two thirds. That's that's the majority, and we're currently in a shift um, to becoming a renter nation, meaning we have a you know, generation of people who saw the foreclosure crisis. They don't want to own a house. They're like, that you know, I don't want that to happen to me. I just want to be a renter. We've got the millennials and, and that um, just they want the flexibility of renting. They don't want to have to be tied down by a house. They want to you know, live here for a year and then move to another city. They want to be able to chase the next, you know, chase the good paying jobs and be able to have the flexibility to move around. We've got the baby, baby boomer generation that, you know, they finally got the kids out of the basement. So now they want to down, now they want to downsize and, and, you know, just have an apartment and not have to worry about maintenance. And so we're seeing just a huge shift. You know, I, our population is 300 and I think 300 something million. And we've got all these people moving. Some of them, you know, most of them by choice, but then some of them by necessity, moving into rentals and apartments. And we have not been building enough, especially in the affordable segment. We have not been building enough units to keep up with the demand. And, you know, there'll be ebbs and flows along the way. But for the next 20 to 30 uh, years, there's predicted to be massive shortages of apartments and rental units for, for all these people who are going to be renting. And so the opportunity there is, uh, is huge. Yeah, you bring up some really good points because you, you know you and I both live in a very hot market. It's a, I would class it as a tier one market, which is you know somewhere where people would come and they want to, you know um, holiday in, in Los Angeles. Um, so how is that affecting you know because property prices here are ludicrous as we just mentioned. You know, flipping yeah. houses here in LA is just you know, through the roof. Very similar to prices in Australia and you, know, you see in Canada and places like Vancouver and you see in Europe uh, where you have this sort of micro economy where you know people who like myself are trying to break into the market to buy and own, but it's becoming hotter and hotter, so you've got to rent for longer. So I definitely you know see these pockets like LA, like San Francisco, like parts of Chicago, like New York, coastal cities that are very similar to where I'm from in Australia. And you could you could, you know, draw similarities to your European, you know, brothers and stuff like that who've been renting for a long period of time. So but these other these other little economies like the Phoenixes and the tertiary markets and the secondary markets, Dallas Fort Worth and and you know Charlotte, North Carolina, how are you uh, ooh, First of all, are you even investing in secondary markets, and and how are you from a, from an investment point of view, you know, with that same knowledge and knowing that people are going to start renting, if it's more affordable in those markets, why would people still want to rent um, from you in, in your apartments that you, you buy? Yeah, I prefer the secondary and tertiary markets. Um, number one, we can get a much better yield, uh, or you know, meaning much better return on our investment. They tend to be more stable. They don't boom and bust as much, right? So, you know, in in L.A. and Orange County, California, during the crash, I saw certain markets drop. The value of the properties dropped seventy percent. I mean, wow. no, that's that's crazy, right? So, if you go to a secondary or tertiary market in you know Georgia or Texas or something like that, you're not going to go up as much, but you're also not likely to go down as much, right? You have a little lot more predictable growth rate and ebbs and flows. So, I actually uh, prefer the secondary and tertiary markets versus the 
you know, the, the big, the big name markets. And that's part of why those, you know, those big name markets are so competitive because everyone around the world knows about LA New York and, and San Francisco. And so they know it. So they're comfortable putting their money there, but you know, you're going to get a 2% return versus maybe an eight, 10 or 12 in some of the, the secondary and tertiary markets. Right. And, and, and yeah, it's so correct where I know I deal with a lot of uh, international investors in coming from Australia where it's literally single, you know, one and 2% cap rates. So you're, you're, you're buying at an appreciation play hopefully and mm-hmm. that's where the condominium market is so much bigger if you look at something as you know your close you know neighbors up the up to the north vancouver very heavily condominium type of you know multifamily doesn't really exist in places like australia and canada um and in particularly in australia where i'm from because the way in which they they organize it lending is not a not a the streams of, of lending is just different to compared to here in the united states and also the way the government structures it they they'd rather take a piece of of the apartment that is sold individually like a condo rather than the sum of uh, some of the parts and so huh. when, when you're when you're forced to sell off the plan and the, and, the, and it goes back to financing that you don't have a bank who's sitting there who's saying okay this future apartment building is going to be owned by one llc they don't look at it like that they say well hang on you've got to go pre-sell x amount of units before we'll get involved as, as as a bank so that sort of forces you down the road of condominiums uh again the different type of lending strategies that you have in the United States versus Australia, but I don't want to get too much into that because we're not here to talk about you. We're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. But what is it been interesting? Because I also invest in secondary markets. Is I've seen a lot of pushback, even in the more quote unquote affordable, as you're trying to push the rents because you're a multifamily investor. You try and go in there, you buy, you force the NOI that that forces mm-hmm. appreciation. Have you been seeing people push back? Because I know I've been seeing people push back on on some of the rental bumps that I've been, you know, moderate rental bumps between fifty to one hundred dollars. But even that, um, you know, have you been seeing anything like that uh, across the country? Again, as renting prices going up versus the cost of actually going out and owning a home. Uh, you know, we really haven't um, been seeing too much pushback. Uh, you know, generally we're getting, you know, we'll do a five to $10,000 unit renovation and then we're increasing rents probably on average $125 a unit. You know, if, if you do that and your unit is still a great value compared to what else is out there, you, you overall won't get market pushback. And so, but now where you will get pushback is the existing tenants <laughs> yeah, who are used the- to paying, <laughs> who are used to paying below market rent. Some of them might get pushed back, but that's part of the plan. You know I mean, right. when, when you're going to reposition a property, we understand a lot of the tenants are going to transition to somewhere else and we're going to bring in a new, new class of tenant base. So, you know, so there, yeah, there'll be, there might be some pushback from the existing tenants, but for the market overall, so far we've actually had you know, really positive responses. Uh, but your other point is an excellent one. And I think you know, if, if, if you were to say, what, do you, you know, what is one of the top two challenges for multifamily going forward is the affordability piece. Right. Rents have gone up so much that you know, you know, wages have gone up some, but not as much as rents. And so that's something that we do have to consider. So when we're buying an apartment complex and we're gonna say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna raise the rent $125, what we do is we look at that new higher rent and then we look at the median income for the neighborhoods surrounding the property. And we wanna make sure that our new high rent is about 30% or less of the median income, which means that the vast majority of people in that neighborhood will be easily able to afford our rent. And that's how we ensure that we'll get a good market response and there'll be plenty of people who can afford the rent. Um, And, you know, if you're in a good enough area, you eventually will lose some residents to buying houses. We, 
you know, we're in the, the B space. So, you know, that, that doesn't tend to affect us too much. You get more of that in kind of in the A space. I mean, we lose maybe, you know, each out of a hundred units, we might lose two or three people a year to buying a house. But, you know, candidly, that to me is the best reason to, to lose a tenant, right? right? They're, they're improving their lives. They just bought a house. It's fun and exciting. It's a good, generally a good investment. So we actually don't mind seeing that because there's usually five people lined up behind them to come rent the unit anyway. So <laughs> now that's, you actually took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to ask, I was going to ask you that question of what's your metric that you use as a litmus test to how much you force that rent? Because, um, uh, like anything, you know, we do exactly the same thing. You go and spend five to, to ten thousand units, to five to ten thousand dollars a unit, depending on the turn, and you expect to get, you know, uh, compensated for, you know, for doing that amount of work and getting an ROI on that investment. Um, but I think a very good litmus test is at thirty percent. So if you can, for all those people listening out there, you know, running the numbers with a piece of paper and pen, is that times the new rent or this renovated rent by twelve, and if that is no more than thirty percent of uh, of the median. Uh, income from for that suburb, and, and I'm talking about that zip code. Uh, you um, will, will, that you'll be putting in a good stead for making sure that you're not too overpriced, uh, because exactly. it's it's when you start pushing the forty and fifty percent, which is what we're seeing here in LA. I'm asked at you know like where renters are seeing, and so you have that. This is, goes back to this whole tertiary primary market conversation we've just been having of like in LA, New York, San Francisco, people are spending upwards of fifty percent of their income on rent uh but they're living in nicer apartments and um you know stuff like silicon valley and santa monica and you know downtown manhattan and brooklyn and so there's that do you think there's a a risk that these tertiary markets can turn to something like that where you're starting to push the 40 to 50 percent margins uh I mean, I would, I would definitely wouldn't say the risk doesn't exist, but the, the, the markets I operate in, um, I have not seen that. Now, that might be happening again in, in, the, in the A space or right. you know, if they're building something luxury and um, you know, you know, there it's fifteen thousand dollars. I mean, fifteen thousand, fifteen hundred. Now that's L.A. Uh, and, you know, it's fifteen hundred a month, and you know, the median income is thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, that's going to be pushing it yep. definitely. But I really don't see a whole lot of that in the markets that we're in. Uh, speaking know, of speaking of those markets, what markets are you in? You know, we are um, in all all over Georgia. We're in North Florida. We're in Texas, and we we look at deals in the Carolinas, but we don't currently own there. Got it. Okay. So talk to me about where you think the next, are you going to continue investing in those same markets or are you looking at new markets? Because you just said, you know, North Carolina, why would you be looking to somewhere like North Carolina as a new market to venture into? Because I know Raleigh and Durham have been had massive growth uh, over the last little while. What are, what's your two cents on, on those type of emerging markets across the country? And where should you be, where should people be looking? We, we actually, we like South Carolina a little better than North Carolina, but where we're looking now is we're looking a little more defensively. Uh, there's, you know, the right, you know, the, the economy has been growing for a long time. Right now, everything's great. All signs are it's going to continue to be great for a while, but a recession will come at some point. I mean, it's just, it's just how things work, you know, and, and, and to try to predict exactly when is, you know, if you, every year, if you say, Hey, recession's coming in a year or two, eventually you'll be right. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're not going to try to do this. So what we do is now is the first thing we do is we look at well, what's the potential downside. And then, you know, and if that's acceptable, then we look at what's the potential upside. So getting back to that first question of what's the potential downside, we look for markets where the the, the economic base is largely recession resistant. So the last property we bought, 
uh, we just we closed at the end of February, is in a city where the top three economic drivers are a large medical center, mm-hmm. a large university, mm-hmm. and an Air Force base. Right? Those three things are basically independent of the economy. Yeah, they you know people are getting older and getting sicker. They're, uh, they, you know, the Air Force, at least under the current administration, is going to grow, if anything. And, you know, that, that we've seen kind of a reinvestment into the military. And then the, un- the university that's in this town has been consistently growing every year. And, and actually, you know, when, when the economy goes bad and people have a tough time getting jobs, they go to school instead. You know, so the, you know, the, the universities tend to grow. So we're in a spot where if the economy continues to grow, we'll benefit. But if it does go into recession, we should, the industries that surround us will either stay stable or actually benefit from the recession. So those are the kind of markets we really like right now, where there's a bit of a, a de- defensive play and a stabilization factor should, you know, should there be a weak spot coming down the road. Sure. And, and do you do anything on the deal side in terms of getting certain debt on the property, given where we are in the market cycle? Yeah, we only do non-recourse debt. And bridge or bridge or agency. Uh, typically, it's agency. Yeah. And you know, sometimes we'll do non-recourse bridge loans, like for a life company uh, or a regional bank or something like that. And you know, even on a bridge loan, we try we try to get a term. We just did a well, actually we just did a regional bank loan that's you know a twenty year term. Wow. Um, so you know, it's it's meant to be a bridge loan, but if something happens with the market and we can't get out of it, it's fine. We can just we can hold and wait it out. Uh, so generally, you know, if it's a property that will support agency financing at the beginning, meaning it's, you know, 90% occupied and meets all the agency requirements, then we'll typically get, you know, 10 or maybe even 12 year fixed debt right at the outset. That means, you know, that was so we just eliminate interest rate risks completely for the next for that period of time. If we can't, um, for example, you know, we're looking at a property right now that's about 80% occupied because they, they emptied it out to try to release it. And so you can't get agency debt on that. So we're going to get a, a, like a five-year non-recourse bridge loan that we can then transfer into uh, agency debt down the road. And you know, five, you know, five years should be enough time to, to give us some flexibility to do that should the markets not be ideal when we want to refinance. And, and that's an interesting thing you bring up because you know, five-year horizons, particularly in my book um, you know, right now, I would like to have, if I was to go get an, a bridge debt like that, I'd like to have probably one or two to three years extension up my sleeve just in case mm-hmm. because five years is just around the corner. And if you can't refinance that out, and a lot of economists I've talked to in, uh, in you know, real estate investors on the show said that one of the biggest risks are the balloon payments that are coming due on a couple of, a lot of deals that were you know, made in 2010, 2011, 2012, that five years now, and we're now smack bang at 2018. So you know, my, you know, what's the advice to those people out there who want to get involved in multifamily uh, from a debt perspective to reduce, you know, you, you talked a little bit about getting fixed uh, long-term debt, uh, but what, you know, if you, if you are forced down that road of, of recourse, um, a, uh, sorry, non-recourse uh, regional bank debt, bridge loans, how do you sort of soften the blow a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it's it's very critical to consider your exit when when you're placing debt on a property, and you know what's that exit going to look like if things you know aren't as favorable when you get there. Right. Um, so you know, we try to get as long a terms as possible, as little prepay penalty as possible, and you know, we if we say okay, we're gonna you know, our plan is to refinance this thing in two years, but what if we can't? 
Yep. And so, you know, so how do we structure that? So, you know, we might get a, a loan where, okay, we can, we can extend, you know, another three years and make it an eight year or, or just, or like the one I just mentioned, we got, we closed um, a few months back where it's a 20 year Yep. and there's no prepayment penalty. So we can just, you know, we can, Exit we can hold it or we can refi out. Just we're fine either way. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that's a, a very significant consideration um, right now. And, and actually, even, even, even if the markets don't change, um, the type of debt you place on a property can have a significant impact on your exit strategy. Correct. And a lot of people just, you know, they're, 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 depending on your strategy, you know, agency debt might not even be right for your property or your deal. So that, that's, that's a major thing to consider. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and you know, you're sort of alluding to the fact that if you get agency on it, and you want to flip it in three years time and you're on a you know, fixed year, seven to 10 years, um, you're going to have an early prepayment penalty, right? And, and, and you know, it's harder to get out of deals. So I actually uh, met a guy in Austin a little while ago and he said last year they paid close to $5 million in early exit penalties. Ouch. But, Ouch. but, but. <laughs> The fact was, he was getting such good rates for his properties; it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I've, I've heard this, I've heard similar things too. There are people who are just like, you know, it's worth paying the payment penalty because I'm, I'm still going to get a great return from my investors. No, that, that's awesome, um, Andrew. Tell me about the growth of you know growing from single family and just the mindset it takes to go and now grow your portfolio to over eighteen hundred units. And and what is a team that you built yourself around uh, built around you? And, and what sort of systems uh, are you growing and, and constantly working on as a business? itself yeah i mean it's definitely it's definitely a shift going from you know flipping a few houses to trying to manage a couple thousand units uh you know for for team uh you know like like you said we're we're both out here in Cal southern california our portfolio is primarily you know it's well it's texas georgia north florida right now and so we have an office manager here that that helps just you know every day with with uh, admin and and you know just all the documentation and just all the stuff that comes with running in you know, business and managing properties. The majority of our team is actually, uh, you know, outside of our principles are just are highly skilled third parties. Yep. So we have a really good third party property management um, company uh, that manages all of our, all of our units. And that gives us, you know, they've been in the market for much longer than us. They've been in property management for you know, for decades, that gives us on the, you know, local boots on the ground experts that, you know, even if I lived in that market, I couldn't duplicate. So like, if we're looking at a, if we, you know, if a broker calls me and says, Hey, I got this nice off market property, the guy's ready to sell, you know, it's in this, it's in this little town, you know, you know, let me know if you're interested, you know, I can call our property management team generally they'll go out and look at it within 24 hours or, and then they'll give me a full report on the market. They're like, yeah, you know, we managed three other, we managed three other assets in this market. They're doing really well, blah, blah, blah. Or they'll say, Hey, you know what? Uh, you know, we, we know some other properties in that market. They're struggling. You might want to consider not investing here. Here's why, or you know, that property has a history of problems with this, this, and this. So you might want to, you know, stay off of it. Um, and so having that, those team members spread all over our geographic area allows us to number one, you know, tap expert knowledge that, you know, one person can't create or duplicate. And two, it lets, lets us move very, very quickly. And so my job really becomes asset manager. And, you know, so I, my day to day is I am managing the manager. So we have a, you know, a manager in each property, there's regionals, 
there's maintenance supervisors and all that. And so we have, you know, weekly conference calls. Uh, I go out for, 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 you know, site visits on a regular basis. And uh, we have, you know, general contractors and, and construction management people. And, you know, all of that has, has actually worked out really, really well. And that's an interesting thing you bring up because you're, you're creating yourself a very true lifestyle business, right? You're not, you're not creating yourself a, uh, a corporate business business where you have a lot of employees, a lot of mouths to feed. It's sort of, if you can keep it lean, but keep it mean, right? And you can keep the structure tight. And so you are paying those third parties through the revenue from the property and it's not coming out of your personal pocket and the fees that you make from syndicating, right? Is that correct? Correct. And, and what, I, what I really like about it though is, is with, with running lean and not having overhead is it never puts pressure on us to do a deal that we shouldn't do right. because of our own expenses, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I, I see people that do that. They rapidly build a business and they hire people and they do all this. And, and that is, you know, you can't do it alone. You have to bring people in to, to succeed and to build a business. But what I see sometimes happening is people create this overhead, this need to pay the bills. And so they'll go do deals that they shouldn't do to, to keep the machine running. Uh, so we want to be very careful. Yeah, you know what? If right, you know, right now there's still good deals out there. But if the market gets to a point where we don't feel like we can, we're, we're serving our investors by buying deals, then we want to be able to say, eh, all right, we're not going to do a deal right now. Right. Um, but if you have a big machine to feed, that gets harder to do. So. And, and does that bring up any, you know, I love talking about business ecosystems on, on the show. And, you know, you, you know very well that buying large multifamily properties uh, you, you have scale, right? And mm-hmm. you could go and start a property management business or you could start a more recession-proof business uh, you know, and become you know, not as reliant upon buying assets to, to, to feed the family. So have you ever thought about doing any of that sort of stuff? We have. And you know, at this point with our current portfolio, we're at a point with the income streams from those where we don't have to do any deals. Right. Um, you know, as far as property starting, well, property you're, not, management, you're, not, you're not forced to do any deals because the current property portfolio is doing so well, right? Just, just, yeah, exactly. Just exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, you know, as far as starting a property management company goes, you know, I, there are operators that do that, especially once you get to 1500 or 2000 units or so that's kind of the, you know, I hear different numbers, but people say anywhere from 1500 to 3000 units is the point right. at which it kind of makes sense to start your own property management company. Um, you know, property management is a high headache, low return business mm-hmm. that candidly, I don't want to be in. I would rather hire somebody that they love it and they are complete experts at that and pay them and do what I'm good at, which is, you know, relationships with investors, finding deals, analyzing deals, you know, finding great properties and, 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 you know, creating the value in them. That's, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I, I can do well. And, you know, your, your high, the best thing you can do in any business is to do what you are good at and give everything else to, to other people and manage them. Right. So, you know, like, like, you know, so like, like, you know, as my wife told me one time, she's like, let KFC make the chicken. Right. (laughs) You know, if someone, someone else can do it, you know, far better than you bring them in onto your team and then have them do it and then just manage them. Yeah. Right, right, right. I, I, being an engineer, I see so many opportunities, uh, 
you know, in the business of multifamily real estate, you know, sourcing, right? For for mm-hmm. example, materials. Like I'm, de- I've already started buying stuff directly from China because it's just we did too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, how do I create this sourcing business because it just doesn't make any sense to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and pay them, you know, top dollar. So love that. Um, you know, other other risks. Like, do I ever want to start? I'm probably in the same shoes as you. Do I ever want to start a property management company? I could, and that's a way in which you create a recession-proof business for other, your investors. But as you said, high, uh, what would you say? High headache, low return. So yeah. I, I, I'm also on the same boat. But there's other things that you can do, construction management, um, you know, partnering with GCs, stuff like that to help reduce the cost. Because, you know, my big thesis right now is how do I get a $7,000 unit turn for 5000 bucks? I know I can with scale. I just mm-hmm. got to go out and figure it out and work out the systems and not have to pay, you know, overhead. So, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I'm sure a show we could talk a lot about just for yeah, one, one particular show. <laughs> but mate, what is the biggest piece of advice you can give to someone who is starting out investing here in the United States or in multifamily, um, maybe for anything from looking for the new market or, or, or trying to, you know, crack that first deal? I would say, you know, sheer persistence or relentless persistence. You know, it is a hot market, it is a tough market. It's not easy to break into, but it is worth doing. Uh, the rewards are, are definitely there. And, and it, is def- it would be a, you know, if I were to go to Australia or, you know, and try to break in the market, I'm going to be at a disadvantage. So, you know, what I would probably do is if I wanted to get in the market, I would say, hey, read. <laughs> <laughs> Can we partner on something? And, you know, so I, you know, the, I, I would reach out to, to someone local and see if I could partner or at least mentor or, you know, invest locally, you know, cause another, you know, like I said, for, you know, we're primarily in Georgia. So not only do we have teams there, but I can, you know, living in LA, I can, if I need to get to Atlanta, I can be there in four and a half hours. I mean, right. there's like, you know, 10 direct flights a day. So, <laughs> but if I was, if I was investing in Australia, mm-hmm. that would be a little bit tougher of a proposition. So, you know, if for but me, but in saying that, you could go and set the same sort of teams up that you have done in other markets and apply the same strategy, right? Because exactly, and that, yeah, you're you're exactly right, and that's what I'm getting to is is you've got you've got to set up the right team. There, you can invest anywhere in the world. Right. Um, I mean, with everything's online. There's, you know, it's not like even 20 years ago where investing far away was kind of a scary proposition. Now. You know, with video, I mean, we can, have, I have people walk around with their phone and live video. So I, they, I can see a unit in progress, right? So, you know, the, the, the key is just the, the, the sheer persistence to get into the game. And then in order to succeed, once you're in is you've got to build a, you've got to build a team, right. uh, you know, in the market you're in. And then, you know, if you get up a little bit of scale, probably locally as well. And that could be, you know, that could be partnering, that could be hiring, that could be third party. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but that would be, that's absolutely critical. I, I completely agree with everything you said. I, I think it's so important to, to create that team and to partner with someone local. I think that really helps create that, uh, not only credibility, but the boots on the ground in order to help you scale and, and really crack the market. Because knowing a market like the back of your hand in a tight markets that we have right now in, in, in multifamily, it means that you're going to be able to find value where the, the average person who's coming along just doing their, their very, their, their back of the napkin analysis is probably going to pass. Where you've got to, you, you've got to understand what can I really squeeze out of this rock in order to make the value work for me, <laughs> right? You're absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> Mate, I always like to end the show with uh, you giving me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, I mean, I want to give you... Can I give you three? You can give you as many as you want. <laughs> All right. Number one, always get as much sleep as you need. Yep. You, 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 
you, you nothing affects your productivity more than getting enough sleep. You, know, you want to be more productive, make sure you get all the sleep you need. Number two, exercise on a regular basis. Um, and then the third thing is every night, the, one of the last things I do is sit down and look at, you know, kind of the big picture and then for the, you know, the month and the week, but then I plan out the next day so that when I wake up that next morning, that the whole day is already laid out. I don't have to sit down and figure out, okay, what do I got to do today? That's done. I can get up and just hit the ground running. So. Right. That's awesome. No, I think sleep is so important. And so many people think that sleep, you know, sleep when you're dead, it's like you'll be dead sooner than you know. You'll be yeah, in I was just going to say, you'll be You're going to be in a grave by the time you're 40, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but get enough sleep, enough exercise. I'm a huge guy. I love exercising in terms of, you know, making sure it also helps clear the mind. Uh, oh, sorry, I, yeah. I, I, get, I get so antsy sometimes, like, I've got to go for a run. <laughs> and yep. then and writing, your, writing your stuff down. To do, and I know so many people do meditation. Uh, sorry, uh, journaling, or they do. You know, I'm a big fan of doing my Sunday night ritual for the week, and so I've got pretty much you know the big two or three items, and every single day, obviously things will, will crop up that I've got to you know make the, the to do list uh, be a little bit more heavy uh, in the mornings. But um, I love I love the art of writing something down and crossing it off because it's like a little victory. <laughs> it feels like, good, yeah. yeah. Done that, done it. And I look at the end of the week and look this massive page of just crosses all down through the page. I'm like, yeah, that's a good that's a good victory. So it's so awesome stuff. I know you'd have to have an influential tool in your business, and I'm not, it, could be, it could be a hardware or it could be software, but, but what is it? You know, a lot of people have probably heard of Evernote, so I won't mm-hmm. say that one, but I do use it. Um, same thing with Salesforce. One that probably people may not have heard of is it's an app called Todoist, T-O-D-O-I-S-T, and it syncs across all devices. It is a fantastic uh, project and task management um, app or system and i love it what i love about it is i can be on an airplane and be like oh i need to make sure i don't i, I check with follow up with so-and-so on this thing on tuesday i pull out my phone which is not connected because i'm on an airplane i put it in there the minute it's in my phone and the minute i land it syncs with everything it's on my calendar it's on my to-do list it's off my brain and, and and it's managed and so you know i used to do i use it for personal i use it for business i use it for everything and absolutely love it that's awesome. Yeah, I, I use another one called Smartsheet. Um, it, it is driven by internet, unfortunately, but it's a very another fantastic pro, uh, pro project management tool. Uh, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Um, you know, as far as business and and in in you know investing. Uh, it would probably be one of my one of my early mentors. Um, of course, you know my, my my parents did a really got me started off financially on the right foot. They they modeled good finances, and then um, but as, you know once I started getting into the business world, my mentor Tim Road, uh, who's still a good friend and still a good mentor. We you know we definitely wouldn't be where we are without his guidance and encouragement and and knowledge. That's awesome. That's awesome stuff. Well, if Tim's listening. It's you, Tim. <laughs> what has been the biggest failure to date and what did you learn from that failure? Yeah, we brought a property and uh, one of our early deals was a property we bought in a rough area of Dallas. And it was a, it was a beast. It was 350 units. Wow. And we got in. It was an older property too. It was like built in the '60s and early '70s. Had a chiller system. It had been, you know, it had been. It basically had been run as a slum, so it was in bad shape. And so we bought it. And you know, getting into it. Two things. Number one, when you buy a, an old property like you know '70s and '60s, and it hasn't been taken care of, 
the, every time you fix something, you find something else that needs to be fixed, right? So, you know, it's like you peel off the layer of the onion. It's like, oh, geez, it's even worse underneath. Yep. Yep. And so, so the rehab budget, it became pretty clear that there, our renovation estimate was going to be a little short, right? Mm -hmm. And then also the demographics there were so were too rough, meaning you, know, you, you can't bring a property up above the quality of the neighborhood. So we would renovate these units. We were getting great rent increases, like $125, but the tenants would come in and destroy the unit every time. Mm -hmm. So every time they move out, you'd have to basically renovate the unit again. And so, you know, what we, and so what we did is we actually, you know, a couple of years in, we got, we got an incredible offer on the property that, you know, to, we weren't expecting to hit that price target for five years. So we said, you know what, this is a great opportunity to just make a profit, learn our lessons, get the heck out. And, 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 and you know, so, so it all, so it ended well, but what we learned from that is number one, make sure you're buying in the right neighborhoods. And number two, we just don't buy anything older than 1980. Uh, yeah. And we actually, I prefer the nineties, but I'll go, you know, I'll do 1980. And, and, you know, that part of that, that experience is part of what led to our parameters of, you know, we won't buy in an area that has a median income below 35,000. We will not buy in an area that has any kind of crime issues whatsoever. Uh, you know, we won't buy stuff that's older than 1980. And then the handful of other things is, you know, is what we learned from that. So that's awesome. That's really, so not nothing older than 1980s um, median income higher than 30,000 uh, 35 what, 35 what was the other one i think you you mentioned one more uh, we don't buy in areas that have any kind of crime issue crime crime, crime. yeah those yeah. Two, i think that's that's, and, that's and i should add that the median income number that's that is applicable to the markets that we're in you know mm -hmm. if someone's investing in california or you know so that number would change but that's you know, we found that's applicable for the class of asset that we're buying in the markets that we're the buying. secondary and tertiary markets which we talked about a little bit earlier yeah. that's awesome andrew where would where can people go to continue the conversation they want to reach out to you and say g'day uh and you know maybe maybe catch up and get you know chew chew the fat a little bit uh if they want to you know pick your brain I'm on bigger pockets. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, also, if you want to, you know, the best way to actually start like a conversation via email or something is probably just uh, submit your contact information on our website. So our, you know, our company is called Vantage Point Acquisitions and the website is just uh, VPACQ.com. Uh, so, and if for some reason, you know, it doesn't come up, just search vantage point acquisitions and you'll, you know, click on the team page, you'll see me there. And then if you want to reach out, just hit contact us and, uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. That's awesome, mate. Well, I want to thank you for dropping in today. I certainly learned a lot from all the experience and some of the takeaway things that I've particularly learned. I, I love what you said at the beginning, rent-a-nation. That's what we are. We're, we're in a rent-a-nation and we're, we're, we're following trends similar to Europe and Australia where, you know, the, 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 the trying to achieve that you know home ownership status is becoming harder and harder and harder every single year as as house prices increase and wages do not it's hard to keep up and people are renting longer millennials want to live closer to urban downtown cores people are downsizing there's a whole slew of issues but I think that was a really uh, good piece of takeaway piece of advice I think the last three things that you said before about choosing your market wisely crime median income and nothing built later than 1980 was was really really important uh, and then also talking about about you know building your ecosystems because you, you you can go out and build a property management team if you wanted but you don't want the you don't want the high headache and low returns right as you said so um, did I leave anything out there no I think that uh, that covers it pretty well Rude. awesome mate well I want to thank you so much for dropping by enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon all right sounds good take care 
Well, there you have it, another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice. And if you do want to reach out to Andrew, please hit up my website at reedgoosens.com forward slash podcast. All the links we did mention on today's show will be up there. Please remember to give Andrew a holler if you are in California. I'm sure he'd love to go out for a beer with you. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ is because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Thank you.